0: Well, many of you know that uh, I grew up. Let me get this right. Okay, that I grew up um, uh, with a forestry professor. That was my my father's a forestry professor, and uh, and so I have a special, um, I don't know what the right word is, a special heart for those who are out fighting fires today, um, uh, especially in the West. And uh, and so I just I would love to lift up. There are. There are going to be thousands of people who are at different levels working in that. and, and um, So I'd love to pray for them and, uh, and, and what they're experiencing. And so if you would, if you would join me in that. Lord, I, I want to lift up um, the, the very brave men and women who are uh, setting themselves against um, the fires that have started um, out west. God, um, uh, I know that there are thousands of people who are losing homes, many who are losing their lives. And, um, and Father, I, I just ask for a special blessing on them. God, you, um, and we know from Scripture that though we understand the science behind uh, precipitation and temperatures and all that kind of stuff, Lord, I, I pray um, as we are reminded that you, in fact, are the God, the sovereign God of all of that. Um, Lord, I pray that you would provide the type of conditions that would um, make it easier to fight those fires, um, that would help put those fires out. Um, Lord, I, I pray for your provision. I know that you have children in the midst of that and I pray that you would provide for them and that all who are there are your treasured creation. So Lord, we ask for your special blessings, your special grace in the midst of this. In your son's name we ask it. Amen. Um, okay, so as we're jumping into John 8, back into John 8, starting in verse 30. So if you've got your Bibles, you can pull those out and uh, and check me. Make sure we're not making stuff up and putting it up on the screen. and. Uh, And so if you start, if we're going to start in verse 30, which is where we wrapped up last time. And honestly, the the challenge this week is verses 30 and 31, especially 31 and 32, are are some of my favorite verses. Um, I grew up very much so in a a type of church that intentionally or not would not really talk much about the freedom of Christ. Uh, I think that was scary to them. Human freedom was so scary. And there was a lot of things that they taught doctrinally that when I got old enough to search it and study it myself discovered that the root of a lot of those doctrines were not based in Scripture, but really were based in, well, we're afraid of what people will do if they know they're free. And, uh, and so that was the, you know, if you start telling people they're free and that they really have grace, they could start doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So we better keep that kind of quiet at some level and uh, minimize that teaching, which is a, a huge shame. And so it was so powerful to me to get to... Um, to experience and learn about studying Scripture myself, uh, about the freedom of Christ. And so this is part of why I encourage you, study Scripture yourself. Um, Dig into it and learn about it. But we're going to start in verse 30. So here you have this this ongoing dialogue that's been going on with Jesus for about a chapter and a half now with Jesus and these others in the temple. And, And in verse 30, what we hear is that as he's saying these things, many believed in him. Now this is interesting language. And, and it's always challenging for us because we like the Bible to be like a textbook. We're more comfortable with the Bible. We either treat it as a magic book that we can just kind of store in our house and it will change, chase away the evil spirits. Or we want to treat it like a textbook, meaning that it always means exactly the same thing. No matter what part of the Bible you're looking at, it's all exactly the, the same and all the words mean the same things. And that's not the case. Um, and so, what you've got, like in this passage, is you have this word "believe," and we're going to spend a little time on this. But the word "believe" here—understand that this is the this Greek word here that, that we've talked about quite a bit. It can be an active verb uh, in the Greek. So we don't have a, an English version of the of the word "faith" that is verb, like you, we don't "faith" in things. Uh, but in the Greek, that's exactly what they, they would "faith" in something. And so, faith here, meaning in this language. To be persuaded by something, to be convinced of the truth of something, to to begin to trust in that thing because you've been persuaded that it is the truth. And so we end up saying words like many believed in him. Many trusted in him would be another one In, in the original. It's many faithed in him. The problem is you can have belief in all types of things. Um, you can have belief in all types of ways. You can have belief in all types of degrees. And so you can believe in something is true. But that doesn't mean that you that what we talk about, the type of belief, the type of faith that would actually change things. Um you can believe that a chair will hold you up and yet not be willing to sit in it. you could You could believe that airplanes fly and yet find yourself in terror every time you consider going on an airplane. Um, and there's an old story that that actually turns out not to be true, but it preaches so well. We still talk about it. Uh, of a guy walking across a tightrope and and saying, do you think I can do it with a wheelbarrow? And everybody's saying, yeah, we know you can, and going, well, can I, could I you think I could do it, walk the tightrope with a wheelbarrow with a person in it? Yes, we believe you could do that. And then, well, who wants to volunteer? And that suddenly becomes a separate issue. There's, there's, you can believe at different levels. You can have faith in different levels. And you can have faith in the wrong things. We've talked before, one of my favorite uh, thinkers and speakers in Christianity was, is a guy named Vody Bacham who um, who talks about how he, he's a he's a large African American man and he talks about how if if you get to know him and, and you end up talking about, oh I, I've met him, I know him, and, and then in a conversation later you meet somebody else who knows him and, and y'all start talking and at the end he says, Well next time you see that little Asian squirt, you tell him I said hi. And he goes, Well, wait, 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 we, we got the right name, but we may have the wrong person here. So I have, faith, I have faith in this person, but what if I have just the right name but not the right person? What if, what if that can happen? And so you can, have, you can have error in regards to this. And so we're going to run into this very quickly. Um, but when we, there, You could be convinced in him. You could be convinced of him. You could be convinced on him. We know from Jesus' half-brother James that even demons believe in some aspects, and they tremble. They're terrified of what they know to be the truth. So here we have in verse thirty-one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, "If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." Now I could I could preach on this verse alone. These two verses, a whole son, and I'm going to come close to it today. In fact, there's a chance I will run out of time before I get to the next material. Um, I send out uh, I send out the sermon notes. Um, usually Tuesday or Wednesday, sometimes Thursday or Friday if it's a bad week, and and I send it out to the the pastoral staff, and and I know when I send it that sometimes they're looking at it, and they look through my notes, and they're going like, yeah, no way, there's no there's no way he's getting anywhere anything like through all this. This is one of those weeks I had this picture in my mind of, of Paul getting that email and being like, Yep, yeah, no, that's <laughs> no way he's getting through all this. So we'll see. Um, okay, so uh, uh, some think of the Greek this thirty. And 31, that, so the Greek here says, believed in him in 30. And in 31 says, believed him, had believed him. And so one argument here is that, is that this is two different populations. There was the population of these Jews, these new converts who had just believed in him. And they believed on him and that they trusted in him. And this was legit. This was a saving faith. But that verse 31 is referencing the words, had believed him And that those may have been the people from Galilee who, if you remember way back in chapter six, they followed him until he taught something they didn't like, and then they bailed. And so these would have may have been these were the followers of Galilee who would have been here for the feast. They had believed him, but now they didn't. And he's teaching them a lesson. Look, these are the real disciples, they have the truth, you aren't. Okay, there's there's a plausible and and certainly considerable ink written to argue that side another one is that this 30 and 31 are just using the same thing but that you have a mixed population we know we do we know from former passages all the way back from five seven and even the beginning of eight that we know that there are different levels of people convinced at this point that some of them think he's a prophet some think he's a teacher some think he's a messiah and maybe some are coming to the realization that this is god in their presence The majority are clearly not on the same page that this is God in their presence. We're going to see that next week. Clearly, they are not on that page. You'll see it when we get there. As soon as he he proclaims it in a way that's unavoidable, they're not pleased with it. So we'll get there next time. But for one level, they believed in him or merely believed in him or believed all of this. What do you believe about him? Now, here's a cool thing about this. If you'll remember hermeneutics. The art and science of studying holy writings. Usually when we reference it, we're obviously we're going to mean the Bible. Hermeneutics. The art and science of studying the messengers of God. It comes from the word Hermes, the messenger of God. So as we, as we study this, do any of you remember? We spent a long time on this, but it's been a few years. Do any of you remember there are three main steps that we went to? There's different versions of this taught, all different, but the same basic three. Does anybody remember what, what we said step one was when you're studying Scripture? Anybody remember? Observe, good. Step one is to observe. You look at it. What does it say? What is there? What's going on? And then step two, close. The context is part of it. We call that interpret. So step two is to interpret. We have to look at what it actually says. And then we have to look what's there. And then we have to use the the studying that we know and the research that we know to understand what what are the main truths. So we start with back in its time observing it. And digging into it and understanding things like the context and the language and the tone and stuff like that. And then we go, what are the, what are the truths that are taught here? And then we take these truths that, that the author, that John is teaching. Not that I impose on John. That's bad news. It's not up to me. It's up to, i got to figure out what John is saying. Not what I want John to say. Not what I like that John would to, were to say. But what John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was saying. That's what I have to figure out. Correctly interpret that and move that over And then I have to apply it. Now here's what's cool. This passage, there's great debate over how to correctly interpret this audience that Jesus is speaking to. Believers, sort of. Is it two audiences? Is it one audience with just varying all that? Here's the good news. That's the interpretation we're left with going, not not for certain. The good news is the application is certain. What we're supposed to get from this is the same either way. It's kind of like those who have a very strong opinion on that we're going to be raptured out before there's a tribulation. And then there are those who have a very strong opinion that we're going to live through a tribulation that's going to come upon the earth. Here's the good news. We, and, and by the way, we don't, we don't know. The good news is this. The application's the same. If you're following Christ diligently, daily, living as, according to his way, then you'll be prepared to, to be standing in front of him with no warning and with just suddenly, bam. No, Are we supposed to be prepared to suddenly be standing before God? Yes, we are. Are we supposed to be prepared to live through persecution to the point of death? Yes, we are. Good news. We're prepared either way. If you're following Christ, the application still works fine, no matter which actually ends up being the case. And we can just bet on it and we'll see who's right someday, right? This is the same kind of thing. The interpretation leaves us a little head scratching. The application does not. The application is absolutely clear to them and absolutely clear to us. We are to abide in his word. We are to be his disciples. And if his, we are his disciples, that means we live in his word. That we are there all the time. That we follow his teaching. That we, that we, we live as he instructs. Whichever interpretation is correct, that is the correct application. We are to be in his word, learning his way, and following his way. And that is what sets us free. Now, understand, do you see how powerfully in contradiction that is to the world's perspective? That would teach, that trying to follow the teachings of God, that trying to obey God, that trying to follow Christ, trying to, that that's what locks people up, Right? What really locks you up is when you, it, it takes away your freedom. It takes away your options. It takes away all the different things you could do. And Jesus says, no, no, that's what sets you free. And He's going to make a case for that. And, and those who are living, I believe, those who really follow Christ and who live in that will testify to this. I do. I would testify to it. And, and remember, I'm someone who does therapy with people and has for years. And I get to see which lifestyle sets you free. Does truly, now, can the church, can religion lock you up? Yes, it can. If it's falsely taught, it does all the time. And there's a reason to rebel against that. Absolutely there is. The false teaching, the incorrect teaching, the teaching, teaching of Scripture is behavioral modification, that that's what it's all about. Yeah, you better believe that will lock you up and, and pin you in. But that's because that's not how Jesus taught it. This is Jesus teaching clearly. Believing in him is about becoming a disciple. They believe... Now it's time to follow. And if you say you believe, but you don't follow, then apparently you didn't believe. Apparently the type of belief you had is not the kind of belief that's going to set you free. That's not the kind of belief. You believed in something. Maybe you believed in some God of your parents, or maybe you believed in some God of the church, or maybe you believed in, in something that you thought would work, some pragmatic teaching, or maybe you, who knows what you believed in, but did you believe in the Christ who you could now follow and would now follow? If so then that's when you experience freedom for real. They believe now it's time to follow, to become like him. Obedience is never divorced from belief in Scripture. If you believe, then you seek to obey. Those two things are complementary in the Bible. That's how, we're, that's how we live. Um, no, now, we, we're terrible at it, and, and we have to grow in it, and hopefully we get better at it. But understand, this isn't something like, so if you're not obeying perfectly, then you must not really believe. No, God forbid it, teach that. It's, it's not that you have to be perfect or whatever, but is your heart in saying, this is where I want to go and this is what I want to do and this is who I want to follow, that that's the general, am I abiding in his word? Am I seeking to follow him? That's what it means to live this out. I accept your philosophy. You have persuaded me and now I follow you and now I accept your way. We're going to run into the word way a few times in the book of John. A path, a, a, a philosophy of life. A citizenship. That's what we're going we're gonna to run into this. So, do we just believe, kind of, or do we accept and follow? Faith here is a threshold. There's no doubt. There's a tipping point. You don't believe. And then through the work of the Holy Spirit, by being drawn by Almighty God, by Him creating the conditions under which you as a particular individual will be persuaded, at some point, you are persuaded. That's called conversion. Some people call that repentance. It's a change of direction. Something significant changes. This pathway model works. I'm on a path, and then I repent, and I go a different path. I turn around, or I convert. I change my direction, and I go on a different path. You don't just stand there. You follow. It's a different path. That's normal. That's what it's supposed to look like. Um, there was a, there's a quote, I think, by Longfellow, but I don't remember. I, needed to, I meant to go look that up, but I'm pretty sure that's right. And this, I quoted this to my wife on, like, our second or third real date, standing on a bridge in a Pecan Park in Nacogdoches. And, um, and I said, I quoted this quote, It is hard to know exactly when love begins. It is not difficult to know that it has begun. And, and so that's what I started with. And I said, clearly, for me, in regards to you, love has begun. And that means we probably need to have a conversation. And so that was what initiated that conversation. Um, if you own that moment, now here's what's interesting. If you know that moment, not, and here's what's funny. I don't, I don't like the language. Like, I, don't, I don't mean like, do you know when Jesus saved you? That was somewhere between 2,000 years ago and before the creation of time. None of us know exactly when that was. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus saved you. And that was the fulfillment of the plan that was made before the creation of time. But at what point were you persuaded? I'm curious. Does anybody know the exact date? Sometimes people know the exact date. Can I hear some dates? Do you know exactly when it was? August 15th Of what year do you know? 76. Say it again. January twenty seventy-nine. 79. Who else? October 15, 1972. 72, that's a good year. Anybody else? Anybody know? I don't, think, I don't know the date. I know I was in the bathtub. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, Mitch, that was my next question. Yes. I mean, not whether it was in the bathtub, but the... <laughs> Does anybody, if you don't know exactly when, do you know where? Where were you? At camp? Was that? Disciple now. Was that? On the way to teach a Bible study. To teach a Bible study. There you go. There you go. That happens. Vacation Bible school. First Baptist Church of Amarillo. Iwana Olympics. In, my room. In your living room. Good. Amway meeting. At an Amway meeting. <laughs> Very cool. So notice, it's not, it's, it's not necessary, by the way. It's not, you don't have to know the date and the hour. You don't even have to know the location. It's, it's great to know. But part of why we do things like baptism is to give you something to look back on and say, I may not know exactly what that tipping point was. And by the way, we don't. I, I was at a... At a terrible methodist encampment and and felt the drawing of the holy spirit i know i was about 11 but i don't i don't know exactly when it was i don't know and and here's the question was it was it when i stood up is that when when i was convinced or, or was it when i walked down the aisle or when it was when that old guy who i don't remember anything about prayed with me was god knows god knows when he saved me and god knows how he saved me and god knows when my heart changed and god knows when he claimed me and and that's, so that's, when we know that's great, part of why we do baptisms and things like that, not entirely why, there's lots of reasons why, but one of them is to give us something to look back on that's hard to forget. That you can look back on and say like, I don't know exactly when love began, but I knew it had begun by this date. I knew for sure it had begun by this date. So I think, I think that's powerful. At what point were you set free? At what point exactly was that? And here's what's wild. Part of why it's hard to tell is because sometimes our life, especially depending on what age you are, your life may not have changed all that much. I mean, I didn't have to give up my life of crime at age 11. My wife didn't have to give up her, her, her rebellious at age 3. That didn't, you don't have to. There's not a whole lot of that going on at that point. Because the behaviors may look kind of the same. But, but everything changes when you were a slave. And now you're free. You you may not even fully experience it. I've always thought back to like the Emancipation Proclamation or the Thirteenth Amendment or whatever. When, when you had a, a whole ethnic group in animetal slavery who was being downtrodden and enslaved in a completely awful, horrible, evil way, and then there's this day. But I suspect that a lot of people the day before and the day after did a lot of the same stuff. They probably still ate the same breakfast and ate the same lunch, and maybe some of them even went to the same place to work. And but they were but now they, they here they were a slave and. Now they're free. The behaviors, some of the behaviors look the same, of course, but the identity has changed. That's the idea of being set free and free indeed. There's that threshold that's kind of fun to talk about. There's the repentance picture. I often, often use this picture. So the, um, uh, my, my wife, Ginger, and I, we had met before, and I did not remember that we had met because it was very casual a few times and it wasn't any serious. Um, and, uh, and so I was walking through across SFA campus, and this beautiful woman and two other girls were walking towards me. And, and I was thinking, literally, guys will all understand this. I was thinking, I wish I had a guy with me so I could comment on the girl in the middle. I was like, golly, like she's, and I'm walking past. And I'm thinking like, man, how do I make sure, like, what do I? And I'm just like trying to, trying to strategize, like having a conversation. And I get even with her, even with the three of them. And she says, hi, Chris, and keeps walking. And I repented. I I changed directions (laughs) and was like, "Wait, wait, wait!" Like, and and followed her a little ways. They outdistanced me. I just stood there in the middle of the road, going, "Like, I have to figure out how I know her. How does she know my name?" Like, so I did. By the way, I'm married 25 years. This next month, Um, this is the this passage is so key to me. If you, if any of you ever come and visit Alethea Counseling Center, Alethea is the word that means truth in this passage. This is the verse that goes on our Counseling Center's pamphlet. The truth will set you free. That's where freedom comes from. It comes through his truth. Truth is not the enemy of freedom. It's one of the things we're facing as a culture now is a truth is seen as an enemy of freedom. And it will lock us up and lock us up and lock us up until we finally either get so far down in the dungeon we can never get out, or someone will realize we need truth back. That's why the church can't move away from this. The instant we move away from standing on the truth, we become irrelevant. We no longer have any value to a culture. Of course the culture is going to pressure us to walk away from truth. That will make them feel better about themselves. And churches that do that are dying. The churches that are standing on the truth in a loving and graceful way are the ones that will still matter when the world realizes that they're bleeding out and they need someone to take care of them and we'll be able to say, the truth is still here. It's been waiting for you. It's a very common word in John. Some versions have it more than 45 times in the 21 chapters. So John engages with the, um, uh, John Redford engages with the word mercy powerfully. You'll hear him reference the word mercy. Mercy is a, is a passion-triggering word for him. Freedom is that for me because of of this teaching. Purchased from slavery, set free. So many old-style commentaries, by the way, when I looked at it, they wanted to limit, this to limit this to merely freedom to stop sinning. I kept coming back to that, as if that's the only thing from, that freedom means here, is the freedom to stop sinning. Well, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> okay, obviously. But it's, it is so much more than that. Um, the... Freedom. The word thinks freedom. The world thinks freedom is about political freedom, like William Wallace, um, or at least the version of him that's in Braveheart is fighting for. And every medieval modern movie is fighting for freedom, which is so funny and outdated. They didn't have any of those concepts. These are, but these are insufficient and pale, poor, bland, flaccid, pathetic expressions of the freedom that Christ offers—the freedom to live, to risk to fail, to receive grace, to have a new master, a new life, a new kingdom that isn't dependent on anything else, a new philosophy, a new dogma, a new way to find value, freedom not just from the oppression or persecution and not freedom from oppression or persecution, but from the terrible dread of them, the freedom to embrace even oppression and persecution. Freedom to enjoy the gift of life, the gifts of love and friendship and family. This, of course, includes the freedom from the ownership of our former master's sin and death and self. But freedom from is not the greatest aspect of freedom. Freedom from the terror of having things, including the freedom that can be taken from me. Where I could go, even if I were in chains, I would be free Freedom in and through and to rather than just the addition to a freedom from. Freedom to and in an identity that could never be taken from me. Given as a gift by Almighty God. And that no one would ever have the power over that freedom. I am his son and that can never be taken from me. I could be his imprisoned son. I could be his persecuted son. I could even be his dead son. At least earthly dead but I could never again not be God's son. He has chosen and purchased and renamed and adopted me. The freedom to be who I was created to be. I don't even know how to express this. All I I have are words. Freedom at the level of identity, not just action. Freedom to live in the truth. And the truth never changes. So it's always there to offer me the same freedom. Freedom to serve and love and worship and forgive and live forever starting now. Um, I was encouraged at one point as I was going through my schooling and going into psychology, I was encouraged by somebody to go into the medical world, go be a psychiatrist, not just a counselor or a psychologist, go be a psychiatrist, so I started pre-med. Um, and here's what I learned, those of you who are doctors, um, except for the chemistry and the anatomy, I would have been great at being a doctor. <laughs> um, those, those two were not, were not fun to me, I just didn't enjoy those at all, I would... I would sit in comparative vertebrate anatomy and physiology, doodling and writing poetry and thinking, why am I here? I hate this stuff. And, and then realizing I'm going to sell the next four or five years of my life doing something I have no heart and passion for so that I could spend the rest of my life doing what I have less heart and passion for, but I could make more money doing it. At least at the time, that was the case, right? That's, some of that's changed too. Um, to have less freedom, so I'm going to sell freedom in order to have less freedom down the road like that. And suddenly, and, and I'm going to tell you, I'd love to say it was the Bible that shook me out of that, but it was the movie Dead Poets Society that did it, <laughs> that, that I watched Dead Poets Society. I was like, what am I doing? What am I thinking? And literally just, I never even went back for my lab equipment. And that stuff's expensive, but I was like, I was, I was burning my ships. I was done and I walked to the registrar's office. I changed my major. I dropped to the two classes that I was in that were pre-med classes. Went back to a psychology undergraduate and went back to doing what I love doing. Um, that is not restricted. That's, that is freedom to, to, to be able to risk and attempt and seek to follow God and what he has for you. And, and I think clearly that turned out to be the case. And let me just tell you, here's the best part of it. If you've never experienced this, I have no I do not have words. So this will be between me and those of you who have experienced this. Um, The, let me find it again, let me find the exact wording because I don't want to mess this up. The sweet, sweet joy of introducing others to the freedom found in the truth. That is my favorite moment in preaching. It is my favorite moment in discipleship. It's my favorite moment in therapy. When you get to tell someone the truth and they realize that it confronts and denies all the lies that they've lived in, and your heart rate picks up and you feel awake and alive in a new way as you get to introduce other people to the truth and the truth that sets them free. It is If you've never gotten to experience it, please pursue that. And to pre- the freedom to experience his truth in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, dropped in my lap, that is exactly what Christ has done with his freedom. Okay, now... I think that's what Jesus is saying. All that in one sentence. And now for yet another lesson from the book of John and our ongoing exercise of people missing the point. Ready? John chapter 8 verse 33, And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anybody. How is it that you say you will become free? Really? I think it's time. I know it's only been a week since I introduced it, but it's like, what? I mean, I just Jesus going, what you I, I think Jesus is literally proclaiming a new thing at a new level. Like he's he's explaining maybe the entire law in the moment of saying, the truth will set you free. And they say this. We've never been enslaved. Aside from the fact that like, wait, what? You are Jews and you've never been enslaved. Like, I don't know which is worse, their theology or their listening skills or their history understanding. Like, I, I just, this really strikes me. When I read this, I was like, wait, what? I mean, the delusional? I, I don't, if they're just, are they just being proud of their ethnicity here? A lot of people think that. Matthew 3, 9 and 10. Um, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have... So they, they've done this with Jesus at another... They, they, they're all proud about being the children of Abraham. And this is what Jesus says to them. Um, do not presume to say for yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Because I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children from Abraham. For Abraham. He doesn't need you to be Abraham's children. God doesn't need your help. This is not some pride thing. By the way, and how, how about the idea of having pride in who you were born to? Does that make any sense? Did you do that? Like, hey, I chose so well, I chose to be an offspring of Abraham. Wasn't that smart of me? You had no say in that. You had no vote in that. This is, this is just the, every, at every level. This could not be more. L- look at verse t- uh, Matthew still Matthew 3, verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's talking about the axe at the root of the tree of Abraham. Don't think I won't cut this down, throw it in a fire, and start over with stones if I have to. This is God's glory, not theirs, that they're children of Abraham. They were the seed that God had promised Abraham, like the stars and the sand. And that had, that had really happened even by this point. But not ever enslaved. The list of people who could make the case that they enslaved the Jews includes the Egyptians. Which is kind of a, yes. Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Midianites, and more, would all have the claim that they had conquered and enslaved the Jewish people. So I have no idea. Maybe, maybe they're not arguing full-born slavery, or maybe they're just arguing the fact that you can't enslave their indomitable spirit. I'll give them that. Okay. That would be like enslaving Texans, right? Like you, you, could, you could run us, you could, you could even own us, but at some level, we are fighting you. I mean, just, and maybe that's and the Jews were famous for that, so maybe that's what they're saying, possibly. So here we have this idea of this rebellious heart that they're so proud of, maybe, rather than recognizing it as maybe a character flaw too. But of course, Jesus isn't talking about slavery from a political master. Pride. Listen, to this pride is not another word for freedom. It is, it is amazing to me that we have a culture now, that we have, a whole, we have whole movements called pride in our culture now. That one group or another wants to have a parade or a party or a day when what they declare is pride. As Christians, that should, that, that, I mean, could you imagine? Let's just declare ourselves guilty of the greatest sin against God pride now let's be careful that we don't take a position of pride in response to that we're not that this this is God's glory again but pride is not another word for freedom Jesus and it's Jesus isn't to talk about this it means it means to obey something is the freedom that he's offering the freedom of obedience the freedom of servanthood the freedom of slavery to a to him as master You are a slave to whatever you obey. Do you obey the urgent demands of whatever? What what is it that you find yourself enslaved to? Commas in your bank account? Addictions? Peer groups? Social media? Lusts? We can all identify to some of what Jesus says in in this. This is exactly the the identity freedom we need. It's why we need a freedom at the identity level, not just at the behavioral level. Because as, as behavioral... We are not great. We need something to be bigger, a deeper change. Let me read through what the Apostle Paul talks about some of this. This would require a much more in-depth understanding. I really encourage you. If this this is something that you wrestle with, as all Christians have, at least since the Apostle Paul, um, then going back and reading through some of the middle of the book of Romans, um, the whole book is good, um, but you can just pick up anywhere in the book of Romans and you start reading what Paul writes. So starting in Romans 6.16, and I'm going to just jump. I apologize. We're going to skip like a rock across the surface as I just touch on these. Romans 6.16, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. In other words, obedience to Christ. The clarity here that we are no longer slaves, we are purchased. This is a common theme in Romans and Galatians and, and Corinthians. We have a new identity. So this rightly creates a confusion for us. Well, then why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep messing up? If I'm now no longer a slave to sin and death and self, and instead now a slave to Christ and his righteousness, why do I find myself keep sinning? You're not the first person to wonder about that. The very next chapter, the Apostle Paul in 7.15 says, For I do not understand my own actions. I do what I for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. We hate sin. We hate the consequences. We hate the lusts. We hate the foolishness. We hate, we hate how, how dark, it cre- the darkness it creates in our lives. We hate that, and, we, and yet we find ourselves falling back into that in some way. 7, 19 and 20, Paul says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Let me just tell you, part of, part of why I'm a Christian is from these passages in Romans. I'm so comforted by the fact that the Holy Spirit didn't want to cover up the fact that the Apostle Paul himself dealt with these same emotions. Praise God for Paul's openness and candor with us for thousands of years. That though he's the Apostle Paul, that he doesn't step out in pride as somehow having everything together, but admits that he struggles with these two. If what I do, what I don't want, listen to this. This is where Paul begins to connect to this identity statement. It's no longer I who do it. Because see, he's changed. He's been recast and remade. He's a new creation, and yet he keeps doing it. So there's a sense of which it's like it's not him that does it, uh, verse 20, but sin that dwells in me. So now it's like a foreign body. It's like a a splinter or or a tumor in me. Rather than being really who I am, 8, 15, and 17, Says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We are slaves of God now, and not just slaves, but sons and daughters. This is a change in identity. This is the freedom at the identity level that's exactly what's required for us because otherwise if it's just every time I mess up I'm 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 proving that I'm really still a slave to sin versus now I've proven that because I hate that I'm not a slave to sin I'm just weak. I'm poor. I'm undisciplined. I'm broken. I still need a savior. Even though my identity has changed, I still need a Savior. And I still need the power of His Spirit to work in me. That doesn't somehow change because we become believers. This is important. So Jesus, Jesus, back in chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains Forever. See, that's why it's important that we're not merely slaves. Disobedient slaves get kicked out. Disobedient sons get disciplined, not kicked out. We are sons and daughters, so we may face the discipline of our flaws and problems, but we don't face the abandonment, the forsakenness in this identity. So I was reading it again. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. 36. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Just political freedom? Clearly not. The freedom of pride? Obviously not. Jesus makes this clarification for them. There's a difference between being the, adopt, the offspring and being the child of and the slave of. You may be an offspring of Abraham, but you're not really his child unless you have his views on things. You may be the offspring of Abraham, but you're the child of someone else. You've been, you've been given over. Over and over, Jesus uses this distinction. I'm going to read this and wrap up with just reading this. We may pick up a little bit with it next week as we continue to move forward. But I'm just going to read verses 37 um, through 47. But this is what he's teaching. He's going to show them that though they are so have such pride in being the offspring of Abraham, they don't follow even Abraham, much less God, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you'd seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you don't know what you've, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, "Abraham is our Father." But Jesus said to them, "Well, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You remember a few weeks ago we taught on hospitality. How did Abraham greet God? Over the top, welcoming, everything he could get to him. You'd be doing like Abraham. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. They keep changing their story. They were offspring of Abraham. No, no, they're, children, they're, they're sons of Abraham. No, no, they're sons of God now. This is not moving in the right, correct direction. Jesus said to them, "'If God were your father, then you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil.'" And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason you do not hear these words is because you are not of God. So I believe Jesus wants them to understand the need for freedom. And he is offering them freedom. The freedom that only comes in the truth. Freedom in life, not just word. Freedom actually free. The freedom to follow the truth. The freedom that comes through knowing and following the truth. Accept this truth. God loves you and treasures you and invites you to accept the gift of his adoption into his family. Something that could never be taken away. Which gives freedom unlike anything else. Let's pray. Father, I want to live in your freedom. I want to follow your way. I want my life to be so filled up with your freedom, with your truth, that I abide in your word, that I have true freedom in everything that I do. That the way I live in everything is infected and led by and filled with abiding in your truth and receiving your freedom. God, teach us to live in the freedom of your son. Teach us to live in the freedom that that once we have been set free by him, we are free indeed. Co-heirs with your son, the little brothers and sisters of your son. Thank you, Father, that you have chosen us and claimed us and purchased us and adopted us. We are truly the beneficiaries of the greatest gift in this, God, help us to stand strong by your truth and in doing so offer the freedom that only your son can give through the power of your spirit according to your perfection to the world. Thank you that you loved the world enough to send that son. God, help us to learn to live this way in everything we do in his name. Amen.